You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. We're now on episode number 39 of Understanding God's Righteousness and this episode by Brother Jim Dillingham from the Cranston Ecclesia in the USA is entitled Divine Sanctuaries, Priests, Levites, Brother and Sister. There are four divinely appointed headships. The serpent principle of equality undermines the principle of headship. God consistently employs a two-stage spiritual service structure in the first kingdom age, the ecclesial age, and in the near future millennium kingdom age. It is unwise to disrespect God's headship and that two-stage spiritual service model. In our previous class, number 38, in reference to understanding God's righteousness, we finished addressing all the original questions we had generated in reference to the divine principle of forgiveness. And I asked for the participants to suggest a new sub-theme in relation to understanding God's righteousness, and I I did record all of them. However, uh, and I have started research on them, however, I've decided to initiate a different theme for this next section of our considerations. This decision was predicated on some information that uh, one of our students, Brother Mark, sent me and asked me to comment about. And this was a rather startling report generated from a Christadelphian survey about gender roles. Uh, The report was quite upsetting and the expressed agenda of the sister from Sheffield, England, who generated the survey was even more disturbing. The report indicated that there has been a very significant erosion within the worldwide enlightened community in relation to recognizing the divinely imposed requirements of gender roles during the ecclesial age. Well, I communicated with some other brethren, particularly in the UK, where the survey was originated, and found this was not the extensive survey I had assumed Each survey submission was a voluntary exercise on a Google form, and the survey had not been sent to the ecclesias around the world uh, for um, submission, but additionally, there appeared to be no no degree of fact-checking to confirm the information submitted by individuals who participated. Therefore, it appears the information seemed to be worse than a more comprehensive and disciplined survey might reveal. And that does not mean that we don't have a problem in this area of the issues surrounding the divinely appointed headship hierarchy that God has mandated. Uh, I've certainly encountered these corrupted understandings about ecclesial gender roles over the last 52 years since I was baptized. The common thread in these misunderstandings about gender roles in spiritual service is the same as all the other distortions of God's righteousness, which are heart-generated presumptions that exalt the flesh 
above the Spirit. So we'll begin to address how God's righteousness is defined and demonstrated and balanced in the four divinely mandated headships. And this class, this particular class, is not going to address the separate roles themselves, um, primarily addressed in the two gender-based rituals of the ecclesial age. But we will address respecting the integrity of those headships and how that structure pattern is manifested repeatedly in separate divine dispensations. Now those headships are expressed in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, beginning at verse 2. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. The ordinances that Paul delivered to the brothers and sisters at Corinth and commanded them to keep included this descending headship hierarchy of God being the head of Christ, being the head of man, being the head of woman. Then Paul immediately applies that lesson in one of the four ecclesial rituals that constitutes that pattern of worship that Paul was commissioned to deliver to the Gentile believers, which mandated that brethren must never have their heads covered when either miraculously prophesying or praying due to their appointed headship. And sisters must cover their heads when either miraculously prophesying, which they certainly had the capacity to do in those first two generations of the ecclesial age, or praying. And again, on the basis of her appointed headship, and that there is a divinely appointed headship between a sister and Christ that must be recognized and respected to avoid showing disrespect to the terms of God's righteousness. The focus of our current considerations is the entire four headship stages and how we cannot just recognize the rightness, the legitimacy of these headships, but also be empowered to correctly balance the application of these headships by recognizing the consistent divine patterns through, uh, throughout the four divinely appointed dispensations in our Creator's plan when priesthoods change, rituals change, laws change. Now, by understanding this matter, we will be able to properly balance and apply our understandings of these four headships during our dispensation, the ecclesial age, um, while still respecting the eternal principle. First, let's recognize the identification between these four headships and the hidden glory available by recognizing God's creational testimony of mathematics, because this will definitely have an application in that necessary balancing and application stage in our pursuit of recognizing and demonstrating God's righteousness in our lives. So there are four descending headships, God, then Christ, then man, then woman. I believe we've probably referenced the spiritual identification of the number four 
in, um, in this series of our classes. Four is the number of God manifestation. This identification radiates out from the four letters in the memorial name of God, YHWH, Yahweh. The evidence for confirming that relationship between the principle of God manifestation and the number four is just overwhelming. We could literally spend hours and hours reviewing and validating this specific number identification. Well, just a quick reference, such as the four salvation events in God's plan, um, the four ages or separate divine dispensations in God's plan, the four divine sanctuaries designed by God, the four incense dust ingredients converted into a cloud through fire on the Day of Atonement that saves the life of the high priest, the four blood offering categories offered on the four square Christ altar burnt offering with its four horns, the four untouched by the murderous flames of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, the two rows of four sacrificial components in the heaven and earth covenant between God and Abram, the four living creatures in Revelation who identify themselves as the saints redeemed by the Lamb, and the four cherubim with their four faces and four wings and four wheels within four wheels, all presented with that, within that four-framed image of the whirlwind, the enfolding fire, the cloud, and the brightness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That just goes on and on. The examples, uh, these examples confirm that relationship between the number four and the principle of God manifestation, how God reveals or manifests himself in this frame of four. That's, this is why there are exactly four ecclesial age rituals mandated by God during the ecclesial age, baptism, memorial service, and the two gender-based rituals of head coverings and silence with different requirements for each gender. Um, there, there are quite a few more examples, but this is not our primary issue. We are now just emphasizing the significance of the integrity of those exactly four headships that need to be recognized and also need to be respected. A part of the hidden glory in identifying this spiritual number uh, is seeing how doubling four, well, that becomes eight, which is the number of the Son of God, who manifested the Father perfectly. And tripling four gives us 12, which is the number of the saints, who also manifest the Father under the headship of Jesus, which demonstrates the two stages of those who will manifest the Creator, demonstrating His image and likeness. And this is very significant to recognize, those two separate spiritual service stages of Christ and then the saints. That too is a design template that can be seen, for example, in the divinely appointed institution of marriage, that two-stage spiritual service. Now, another aspect of that hidden glory is correctly identifying the spiritual applications of numbers um, is what adds depth within the patterns. Uh, this four-headship hierarchy demonstrates the same pattern of three within a pattern of four that's witnessed in the name of God. And so many 
of those other examples that were just mentioned. There are four letters in the name of God, but there are only three unique letters in those four, which offers a pattern of three within a pattern of four, just like the four salvation events in the Creator's plan of Christ. And then the two, uh, the first set of saints, uh, and a little more than a thousand years later, the second set of saints, and then the fourth is the complete elimination of death, which saves all of creation. But it's a completely different salvation category than the previous three, again demonstrating that actually very common pattern of three within a pattern of four. These four headships, uh, which of course is the theme of our current considerations, demonstrate this same pattern within a pattern. There is one eternal creator who has no head above him. He has been forever and will be to forever. The other three headships have heads above them and origins and all serve that first head of God himself. Additionally, there are three male heads and one female head presenting a second validating demonstration of this very common pattern of three within a pattern of four, highlighting the principle of God manifestation. Uh, this is actually an extremely extensive pattern within a pattern, but let's just mention a couple more. The sacrificial structure of the heaven and earth covenant between God and Abram had two rows of four sacrificial components each and each row had three severed components of earthly beasts and then one whole fowl of heaven. The first and the second salvation arcs present this exact same doubled pattern of three within four. There were two sets of four saved on Noah's Ark, four men and four women. And there were two generations for each gender with one father and three sons, along with one mother and three daughter-in-laws, again presenting that consistent pattern of three within a pattern of four. The second salvation arc presents a similar doubled uh, pattern of three within a pattern of four. There were four items deposited in the golden ark of the covenant, but only at three different times. First was the single golden bowl of manna. Second was the two stones of the covenant. And third was the one high priest rod, uh, presenting a pattern of three deposits of four items inside that golden Christ Ark of the Covenant. Uh, again, similar to the memorial name of God with the three separate letters, but four total letters in his name. Uh, the second pattern application would be that high priest rod with its four maturity stages of life restoration included in the description. But the, the budding maturity stage is expressed twice. We read, Behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. Apparently, there was an initial budding stage where their buds were just beginning to be apparent, and then another maturity stage where the buds were fully formed. Buds, flowers, 
fruit, a pattern of three within a pattern of four. So the point is a great deal of integrity can be witnessed in those four headships. It's part of a very extensive hidden glory uh, for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, that glory emphasizes the integrity, the divine legitimacy of these um, four divinely appointed headships. Disrespecting those appointed headships will disrespect all of the related issues that share this pattern, including the memorial name of God. This is the effect of the principle of God manifestation. No part of God's principles or truths are independent from everything else. Everything is connected. That's the principle of harmony, of multitudinous singularity, which is God manifestation. There are two primary areas where the uh, self-worshipping presumptions of the human heart have and continue to corrupt the correct understandings and applications of these headships. These are disrespecting first the, the headships of God and Christ, and then disrespecting the headships of man and woman. But both challenges are bound by a single inappropriate presumption that contradicts the very principle of recognizing the legitimacy of a headship. And that's the evil serpent philosophy of equality. The flesh goal of equality is exactly the opposite of the spirit goal of recognizing and respecting a headship. I, I believe we've noted before the prophesied signature doctrine of the Antichrist system. This is uh, uh, one of the places this is noted is 1 John 4, where we're told, told, Beloved, believe not every spirit, or the spirit there is like an outbreathing, a teaching. Uh, believe not every, every teaching, but try the teachings, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world, and hereby know you the Spirit of God, teachings of God. Every, every teaching that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. The denial of the flesh of Christ is prophesied to be the defining false doctrine of the Antichrist system. The fully mature application of that flesh denial is the doctrine of the Trinity, suggesting that, well, Jesus wasn't really flesh at all, but God himself, an immortal spirit being that, that simply disguised himself as if he were just like us. It's maintained that, well, God lied about being able to be tempted against himself and being able to sin against himself and faked his own death since it's impossible for an immortal to die and then faked his resurrection since, since mortals, immortals cannot die in the first place by the very definition of the word. That perversion of the headships mandated by God declares that God and Jesus are equal. 
In fact, that's the very expression of the official doctrine uh, for God and Christ and the Holy Spirit to be co-equal and co-eternal. That insisted upon equality of God and Christ completely contradicts the relationship of those first two of the four headships. The ultimate source of this doctrinal perversion is, is, is as always, the self-worshipping human heart. The doctrine of the Trinity does not simply deny the flesh of Christ. It doesn't simply contradict the divinely appointed headships. It doesn't just make Jesus into a liar and a faker deceiving everyone. This blasphemous doctrine also reverses God's original intent for creating mankind. God wanted man and woman to be in his image and likeness. They rejected that plan by choosing the serpent's rightness over the creator's. But the doctrine of the Trinity claims that God recalibrated himself into the image and likeness of cursed mankind in order to save his supposedly wrecked creation project. That inverts the equation, driving God beneath us and making mankind the standard to which God must comply instead of God being the standard to which faithful mankind must strive. But I think, I think we all recognize the immense danger in this foundational corruption of the first principles of the true gospel. The subtle danger to us personally is the initial baby steps that eventually lead to that extreme degree of false understandings about the terms of God's righteousness. And these include, first, the insistence that there's only one category of sin, and that is only transgressional. Uh, that's a denial of the flesh of Christ. This complete, uh, this incomplete, sorry, understanding would demand that Jesus was made sin just before his death, making that death a substitution and not a representation, suggesting, well, Jesus died instead of us, as opposed to for us. The elimination of that second sin category of cursed human nature completely invalidates the legitimacy of the sacrificial death of Jesus and would have made his own salvation completely impossible. Another example of the initial baby steps of false understandings in the denial of the flesh nature of Christ is the presumption that Jesus could not possibly have been tempted without an exterior tempting source. That is another denial of the flesh nature of our Messiah, as if temptations could not generate unbidden from within him as they do with everyone else. That makes the statement that Jesus was tempted in all points, like as we are, a complete lie. In fact, there is no temptation whatsoever if that temptation is not internally sparked. We are specifically told that God cannot be tempted, but certain people have certainly tried to tempt God. Someone merely attempting to tempt another does not qualify as a temptation until it's challenged 
in the mind and heart of the one experiencing the temptation. The absolutely impossible presumption for this baby step to the Trinity is the presumption that there's some sort of guilt imposed if one is simply tempted. But God never, ever demanded any sin offering or repentance just for being tempted. There is nothing contradictory to God's righteousness simply by suffering a temptation that is rejected. The enlightened community did not progress from truth to apostasy in, in just one step, or even just one generation uh, during those first almost three centuries from Pentecost to the Nicene Council. The difference today is that God's not going to let that, that uh, uh, apostasy, that complete apostasy, repeat itself. Although the prophesied highly unpalatable spiritual condition of the enlightened community at the point of the return of Christ is emphasized repeatedly uh, throughout the New Testament, the enlightened community will not be eclipsed as it was so long ago. Christ's return and the restoration of the kingdom of God will prevent the complete loss of the truth a second time in the ecclesial age, which should serve as a great comfort to us, since he'll have to return at some point in the next few years in order for that second immortalization to be, as is prophesied, two divine days after the first. So, the instinctively right principle of equality, at least from the perspective of the human heart, is directly opposed to divine principles. It generates contradictions to the divine headships mandated by our Heavenly Father. The political structure of God's restored kingdom is not a democracy promoting equality. It's not even a, just a monarchy. It will be a theocracy with the king of kings having absolute authority both politically and religiously. There'll be no religious freedom to worship whatever manufactured gods one may wish to imagine. There'll be no balance of power with an executive, judicial, and legislative government divisions. All power and authority will be invested in one immortal man with the full authority and power of the creator of the universe. The democratic nations of this world will eventually disappear with their uh, presumption of equality being a point of righteousness. Um, there are certainly short-term benefits to uh, democracy I mean, in, in the absence of God's kingdom. I mean, I, I personally would rather live in a democratic nation like the USA or Australia or Canada or the UK rather than Iran or North Korea or the, or the now-dissolved USSR. But the principle of democracy is a construction of the human heart and not a divine principle. Just as we see this fully matured challenge from paganized Christianity and the baby steps within the enlightened community in reference to the headships of God and Christ, we have a similar problem with the third and fourth headships in this four-stage headship hierarchy. This challenge is also based on the God-opposing principle of equality, just as God is the head of Jesus 
and Jesus is the head of man. So man is the head of woman by divine design. Let's just consider how this understanding is demonstrated throughout the plan of God. Yahweh has instituted a two-stage spiritual service pattern from the very beginning that is expected to be respected. Disrespecting that second stage spiritual service pattern has proven to be very deadly and very humiliating. In the previous dispensation, before God's self-imposed silence following the completion of the written word of God, um, which of course marked the prophesied end of the availability of the Holy Spirit gifts when that written word of God was finished. In the previous divine dispensation, that second priesthood age of the first kingdom of God, Yahweh imposed a two-layer spiritual service structure, very similar to the ecclesial age two-stage spiritual service structure, and will also be witnessed in the future millennial kingdom age. God required certain primary functions to be performed by the priests. The Levites were assigned a secondary support role for the priests. The three divisions of the Levites, the, the Gershonites, the Merarites, the Kohathites, all had particular assignments in support of the primary priest responsibilities. This is exactly the spiritual service structure in the ecclesial age, with brethren being required to serve in the primary priest-like service role, and sisters being assigned the Levite-like spiritual service role for support. In the restored kingdom age, that we're anxiously waiting for, uh, there will again be a two-stage structure for spiritual service, as there will be immortal priests and there will be mortal priests. This is when God will fulfill his original promise to make the nation of Israel into a nation of priests. This is uh, when they come to Sinai and God offers them the covenant. He does it in these terms. Uh, he says, now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God promised to make Israel a nation of priests and then immediately limited that priesthood to the physically flawless 30 to 50-year-old sons of just one man uh, who happened to be an idolater. And this was the first great rebellion within the enlightened community at the beginning of that first kingdom age. I call this the equality rebellion. The leader of the rebellion was Korah, a Levite. His co-conspirators were Dathan and Abiram from the tribe of Reuben. Korah refused to accept a subservient service role to the priests. He insisted that everyone was equal before God, and therefore Moses and Aaron had no right to exalt Aaron's sons above the Levites. Um, we, read the, the, uh, we read about this in Numbers 16. 
And it says, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Uh, this was primarily a rejection by the tribe of Levi for their assigned subservient role of support to the priests. Korah, a Levite, and 250 leading Levite brethren in the ecclesia objected to this secondary support role, insisting on the principle of equality before God. Clearly, this objection was prompted by ego and an absence of humility. The important thing to note was how God responded to this rejection of his principles. God buried Korah alive, along with his co-conspirators and their wives and children, with, of course, the exception of Korah's sons, who refused to stand by their father on this issue. And then God incinerated those Levites, insisting that they should qualify as priests, standing there with their priestly censors. Therefore, shouldn't we be concerned when both brothers and sisters in our current generation actually object to the divinely imposed two-stage spiritual service assignments of brothers and sisters, insisting that, that sisters are qualified to perform the same spiritual service assignments as the brethren, just like the Levites presumed. That same frame of reference. But then we're either buried alive by God or incinerated by God. Let's just provide a little more depth to this framework and association. Uh, we should ask why uh, we can see this repeated two-level, why and where, uh, we can see this two-level spiritual service structure of priests and Levites in the First Kingdom Age, brothers and sisters in the Ecclesial Age, and then immortal priests and mortal priests in the Millennial Kingdom Age. Isn't that God's structure when considering Jesus Christ and the saints for that spiritual service design? Jesus is the high priest, and the saints will be that second layer of priests. Isn't that the role of the saints in the kingdom? We see this prophesied more than once in Revelation 5. Um, they sung a new song saying, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us by God, to God by the blood. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kin, and interestingly, four, four components, every kindred, tongue, people, and nation and have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And also Revelation 20, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, and that's, that's actually referring to the second chronologically, but the first for the saints, the second resurrection of the saints will be in a thousand years later, or a little over a thousand years later. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death, that second death category of eternal death, that second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In fact, that is the identification we are given at this time 
in this ecclesial age also the role of priests. And Peter uses the same language as God did in uh, Exodus. We'll just parallel that. First Peter 2 and 9, he says to the ecclesia, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're currently defined as priests in this ecclesial age. And, and like I said, Peter is quoting the exact phrase that God used when he offered Israel his covenant when the nation of former slaves arrived at Sinai. Exodus 19, notice the same terminology. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Apostle Paul also makes many parallels between the ecclesial age enlightened community and the priests of the previous first kingdom age. After stating how Israel was baptized in the cloud of God's presence and the, and the Red Sea and how Israel ate the spiritual bread and the spiritual drink, uh, reading from 1 Corinthians 10, he makes this parallel, dropping down to verse 16 of the same chapter. Uh, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread, one body, and we are all partakers of that one bread. Behold, Israel, after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So Paul parallels our memorial service ritual with the priests partaking of the animal sacrifices of the altar. He identifies us with the priests of the previous age, just as Peter does. And Paul also makes this parallel to the Hebrews when he presents a differential in our priesthood as opposed to the priesthood of the previous age. In Hebrews 13, um, we read in verse 10, Paul says, We have an altar where they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. So Paul parallels the priests of the previous age, being forbidden to eat that altar sin offering for the high priest and for the nation, um, to ourselves, the priests of the ecclesial age who do eat that sin offering from our Christ altar in the memorial service of his body and blood. And then we, we drop down a couple more verses to verse 15, and we can see how we, the, the priests of the ecclesial age, are supposed to offer the substance for the same three shadow divisions of the peace offering that the priests of the previous age offered. If we go down to verse 15 of that same chapter, we read, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, very poor translation, basically means share what we have, to share what we have, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Notice the emphasis, repeated emphasis on sacrifice 
in the context of this parallel that Paul is making between our ecclesial age priesthood and the previous uh, first kingdom age priesthood. Those three service assignments are the exact parallel to the three divisions of the peace offering. That love offering projecting the three great love commandments. Our first, of course, is giving thanks to God's name. Well, the first and most significant peace offering category was the thanksgiving offering. It had to be unblemished, and it had to be eaten the same day that it was offered. The second was the votive offering, the performance of vows, which is expressed here as doing good. The second peace offering also had to be unblemished, but could be eaten on the first as well as the second days. The third peace offering category was the free will offering. Paul expresses this here as, as, as communication, as translated in the King James, but the Greek word is koinonia, and it means to share what we have. It's, it's sometimes it's even translated as fellowshipping. The free will peace offering, that sharing what we have, could be eaten the first and the second days, but could also have certain blemishes. We, the priests and the Levites, of the ecclesial age are supposed to demonstrate the substance of the spiritual lessons being shadowed in the priesthood of the previous divine dispensation so that we might qualify to be the priests in the subsequent millennial kingdom or restored kingdom age. Therefore, it should not be all that surprising that the same two-layer spiritual service construction of priest and Levite demonstrated in the previous divinely appointed age should be demonstrated in the two-layer spiritual service construction of the priest-like brethren and Levite-like sisters as that priesthood support structure, which is a shadow of the two-layer service structure of Jesus Christ and the saints. But, once again, if this connection is truly accurate, there's going to be a, have to be a lot more evidence for this two-layer spiritual pattern that emphasizes this two-layer gender role assignments during the ecclesial age, spiritual education stage in our Creator's plan. As I hope we've begun to see in our continuing considerations, there are very specific spiritual identifications for numbers in both the written and the spoken word of God. These spiritual number identifications, when they are correctly identified, will not simply be consistent, but will also satisfy patterns within patterns and mathematical applications where these numbers and their spiritual identifications are added, multiplied, divided, applied in the laws of physics, chemistry, linguistics. Um, linguistics is, of course, the study of gematria, which is based on how ancient alphabets, like, like the Hebrew alphabet, Greek, Latin, also used their letters as the numerical system. If we actually correctly identify the spiritual understandings of these Bible and creation numbers, that will unveil a hidden glory through the consistency of that correct application, no matter what scientific discipline we employ, no matter where in scripture those numbers appear or how they appear. 
This number two, as in these two stages, spiritual model, is a number that is endlessly associated with spiritual balance. Uh, this is very frequently seen in the fact that every divine principle has two separate applications. And we've noted this in the past. There are two categories of righteousness, uh, personal and imputed, both required. Two categories of sin, behavioral and physical. Two categories of right, resurrection. One is to mortality, uh, preceding judgment. And one is to immortality, following judgment. There are two categories of death. One is temporary, for those who will be raised to judgment. And the other is a permanent death. There are two basic categories of life. Mortality and immortality. There are two categories. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Amen.